Today is Wednesday. It is it is July 1st, 2020. We're halfway through the year. Let's have a word of prayer as we open up. Thank you, Father, for this time we have this evening. We pray for wisdom as we pursue your word through Romans. We thank you for those who have joined us. We pray uh, you will challenge us, challenge our humility to think your thoughts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in Romans tonight. And we um, obviously will get there by way of some Q&A, but Romans 16, 15 through, se- through 17 is about where we are. I know we didn't talk about 16 in detail, so we will try to deal with that tonight. Um, so, interesting verses, uh, but I will open the floor for some Q&A. Yeah, that's what I was studying in Romans, the same for, I think it's 16 or 17. Uh-huh, and what, what what did you want to, did you want to talk about it, or? Yeah, okay, yeah, talk about the, um, the zombies, the get left, left, let me get it. Well, I was, I was going to say, no, don't get it, because you're driving. Okay, I'll, <laughs> That's okay. I'll, you, know, you Go ahead and get I'm it. Sorry. It's, eight. Go it's, ahead. it's Romans 8, 18. Oh, you were at 18. Okay. Yeah. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed to us. I would just, you know, relate to that adversity. So what did did you see anything about it that you want to share with us? Uh, I was just looking at it. Is that also referring to Christ's suffering? And then, but the glory, we we will get that later? Yes. Even though we have, like, um, temporary glory now, but we will get the whole package later. Yeah, the glory that will be revealed in us. That is future. For sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, 818. Uh, now, what was, your, I'm sorry, what was your first part of, the first part of your, your statement? What about the um, further suffering or not worth comparing with the glory that will be, that will be revealed with us? Mm-hmm. Present sufferings. I would look at the suffering part as the suffering as, as Christ. And then in glory, we will get that later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. It is the sufferings of Christ. That is right. We are joining in or partaking of the reproach or sufferings that is of Christ. It's really twofold type suffering. One is just like what we just said, sufferings of Christ. The other is for us to give up ourselves. That requires some suffering. That is a matter of our transformation, where we have to sort of uh, give up our rights to life here in this world. And that's that's hard. It's tough. So it's really twofold. As Christ forms in us, and as Christ uh, begins to manifest in us, the world will hate us. And then we will also 
suffer for him as well. Okay. Yeah. What kind of teaching? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going. To, we're almost coming to that verse. So we're, we'll get there. I don't think we'll get there tonight, but I'm sure we're going to get there. So, interesting stuff. So, so Paul's quote, I die daily, uh, is that part of our transformation uh, daily, uh, putting away the old man and all the remnants of that? Mm. Is that a quote, I die daily? Okay. Anybody want to take a stab at that? Well, <clears throat> dying daily uh, would be related to maturing. You know, that's 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 the goal is to uh, take off the old and bring in the new. Dying daily would be the fact that you're putting away the old man as you're maturing. Growing up, would that classify as present sufferings? Well, dying daily isn't so much about. I don't think it's so much about suffering. He's, you know, he's talking about uh, beating his body into into what the Lord would have it to be. I, I guess if you, you know, if there's things that you know you're doing you shouldn't be doing and you, you may feel like you're suffering because you're not doing those things and the, the old man really wants to do it and you're, 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 you know, you're warrior against the flesh. So that, that part of suffering, if you want to consider that suffering, but that's what it is, it's a war against the flesh. That's what you're dying daily to, you're dying to the flesh. Other thoughts out there? I just I want. Have a I just on that go right ahead, Dave. Like is that a point of putting off the old man and putting on the new? Well, that is. We're asking the question. What is Fred is asking the question? What does it mean? So you're saying that it is a putting off of the old man and putting on the new. That's pretty much what we just said. I only have to look at that. I'm looking for a about that in Corinthians. Uh, that's good. I would say that's where we should be looking. I, I, I wanted to throw this out there because there is a, a specific interpretation for this, which we, we went over. I just wanted to see if anybody remembered it. But uh, according to it's 1 Corinthians 15, 31, and it is not necessarily related to our putting off our old self or anything. It's related to I am in danger of death daily. In other words, he's saying, uh, or, or as the NIV would put it, I face death every day. So his point in 1 Corinthians 15 is um, it's about resurrection. And... If there's no resurrection, why am I putting myself in all this danger every day? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so if you look at 30, he's 1530, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. 
verse 31. So that's how I see it. So this is this is not a transformation. Uh, it's this is physical death he's talking about. Yeah, he's he, he's saying he I'm 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 in danger of losing my life every, of dying every day. Yeah, every day. Physical death. Yeah. Physical death. Yep. Well, Greg, where, where did you pull the verse from that you were asking about? That's all uh, Corinthians fifteen thirty thirty one. I think it's right there fifteen. Uh, 1531. So many people have taken 1 Corinthians 15:31 out of context. They like the idea I die daily part and they relate that to our transformation, you know, but yeah, we're making sacrifices and stuff or or the, the transformation process, you know, dying to self, you know, this is the common theme. But uh, when you look at the context it does not have anything to do with that at all. So I figured I would just okay. use it as a, as a. Yeah, I was just trying to remember where we started from because Dave brought up something from Romans and then Fred asked that question. Yeah, he was talking about suffering. Romans eight eighteen, and how it says, uh, you know, if we suffer, you know, not. I believe the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, that right. was that, so that was a stage. Right. So what what we what reminded you, Fred, of that phrase about dying every day? It was just, just well because well he 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 broke this. In other words, the verse uh, which Dave uh, pointed out. One right. is Christ's word, and the other word is, is towards the individual believer. It's, it's, I'm talking about the uh, the an uh, eight eighteen. So mm -hmm. um, that that scripture came to my mind. If I die daily, I wanted to know uh, is that oh, part? Okay. Do you see? Mm -hmm. That was my yeah. question. Thank you. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Okay. Other thoughts? Yeah, I have a question and a thought, rather. Sure, go right ahead. Um, so, Philippians 1, where we know Paul is talking about um, to live is Christ. So, I find it. Um, I didn't write down the first number, um, but he basically says, "Here it is, uh, Philippians one twenty-two, or we'll start from one twenty-one. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Um, why is Paul, I'm, I'm not really sure I understand why Paul is saying that, um, what, what does Paul mean by having a choice? Which I shall choose. Is, is it up to him to just um, decide which one. I mean, it doesn't sound like he would be cooperating with God's eternal plan if he were to choose. Does he say he can give up and not fight the fight anymore? That's what I'm wondering. Like, which you know? So he's saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. So he's saying that to die is is the better. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, so that is far better. Um, But what does he mean by that? How would that happen? And it sounds like whether he lives or dies is not his choice, but it's it's God's plan. Well, could it be that he's given us a comparison to understand that um, even though we may be hard-pressed on his side, that we keep fighting because... Even even to the, to the point of death, because to die is the gain. Um, that we give us the courage not to fear death. I mean, these, I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, that that sounds like it. It, it could be part of it, um, but it also sounds like um, you know he's choosing. He's choosing because of his joy. Yeah. yeah, I'm saying I, I don't think he's trying to mention anything about suicide. Is, is that what you're getting at? No, no. I think um, it's just that he's just saying it so easily. He's just like throwing it out there as as if it's oh well, I, I can go in the front door or the back door <laughs> of my house. It doesn't really matter. But you know what? It's, it'll be more advantageous to you if I go in the front door. So I'll do that. Well, I'm just saying that. Yeah, I think that in 122, uh, right after he says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. I think the key to that Mm -hmm. verse is, if I am to go on living in the body, this Mm -hmm. this will mean fruitful. In other words, this is also the the plan of God. Yet, what what shall I choose are questions I do not know. I am torn between the two, whether to depart or to leave, and whether to stay here or to leave, which is far better. In other words, much greater uh, to be with Christ. But he's he's not saying he wants to leave. He's just, I think he's, he's just giving you, he's presenting the two. He is saying he wants to leave. He said, my, my desire to be, is is to depart and be with Christ. That's the goal. Far better. But he also re- uh, realizes that to be, he has a, a mission here on earth, and which is fruitful labor for him. And he's, and then he poses the question, what shall I choose? I'll let somebody else talk. And Well, let me just, let me just, first, I think the, the key here is acknowledging Dwight's question. I don't think anybody's, hitting it on the head here and that is that 
Dwight is asking, it sounds like Paul has a choice here. It doesn't sound right that he has a choice. I mean, the, can he just depart? I mean, or that is, is, is that up to him? I think, is that your question, Dwight? Yes, it is. Okay, so that's the first thing we want to do is just acknowledge what the question is. And the answer is, actually, no. Paul does not have the choice of when he wants to leave here. But what he can know, first of all, just to know what, what's happening here is Paul is in prison. He's in chains. Literally. And he's, there's a lot of suffering in this man's life. In fact, when God called Paul, he said to him, let, go on into Damascus and I will show you the things that you must suffer for my name. So Paul had special mantle of suffering and we already saw a lot of it. And we read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which talks about the, you know, all the different things he went through. You know, shipwrecked and chased by the enemies and robbers and beaten uh, by the Jews within inches of his life. Now he's in jail at this point. We call these the prison epistles. So he thinks, he thinks he may die. And he's making peace with that. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he, and he's, he's, if you look at verse 27, he doesn't know. He says, whatever happens, he doesn't really know. But he's making peace either way with himself. He's having this conversation with himself that he could die. This could be it. And would that be so bad? He says, no, it would actually be far better to die. Because I'd be going home and be with Christ. But to live in, in this world, you know, so this is the conversation he's having within himself. And I, I don't have to tell you what he says about it, because he, he gives you the reasoning in each verse. For me to live is Christ. Well, what, what, you know, he's not saying I have the choice. I could check out if I want to. He's not saying that. He's just saying the way it looks for me, my life is so tough, I might as well consider both sides of what could happen. And he says, I, I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I was going to say that if you've been through what, what Paul's been through, you probably can make that statement boldly. Because <laughs> Dwight was saying how easily he stated it. Yeah, probably, if you look at his dilemma and what he's been through, it probably was an easy statement for him to make. He's, he's convinced that he, he's, he's, he'll, he'll remain here, but he, he still doesn't even know that. So he says, I'm torn between the two, meaning... He could put all his energy into, well, that's it, I give up. Or, and I'll depart and be with Christ. Or he could give, put all this energy into uh, staying here and allowing Christ to be magnified in his body, which would be fruitful labor for him and obviously for us. So I think that's where he's coming from. What do you think, Dwight? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Like the way he's phrasing it here, it's like you said, it, it's a personal conversation he's having with himself. So he can, you know, choosing is not the issue. Um, the issue is here I am faced with 
the possibility of either one happening, and which one would I which one would I rather have? And um, and it, it doesn't even come to like even though he says my desire is to depart and be with Christ, it's not like he would make a choice to do that. He's just saying that that's far better. Read, read one twenty. What does one twenty say? It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Yeah, so that's his main thought. That's what he really that's wants. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter. Either way, he's saying, he, that's his whole focus is that Christ will be glorified, magnified in his body, exalted in his body. So he could, we could just like, almost, you could almost take out that phrase that says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, mm -hmm. and replace it with whatever God calls me to do is, is fine. Yeah. You know, my desire is, you know, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, but if God chooses that I remain in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor. Yeah. I see. That, that's the way I see it. Yeah. So in verse twenty-seven, whatever happens, right? He doesn't really know what's going to happen, but it, if he dies, if he lives, he doesn't. He's not sure, but he's telling us, just in case, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one in the one spirit, striving together as one. Right for the faith of the gospel. So, yeah, I. this is an interesting thought, is that when you read the Apostle Paul, what you find is he doesn't just give you surface talk. He's telling you what's inside of him. I like what he, when he does that. It gives us a lot more information to deal with. Uh, look at Romans 7. Where he says, well, uh, you know, I... Every time I try to do good, evil is present with me. Then I realize this. And I, all that is internal thinking that we would never get if he just didn't give us any transparency. He could teach without giving us transparency, but he gives us what's happening on the inside of him, which is, I think, a wonderful thing. Yeah. That's a good, nice way to look at it. I like that. Other thoughts out there? Yeah, I was looking at that verse like the white brought up. I was looking at that verse in Philippians 1, 17. It was saying, The former piece of Christ out of selfish ambition, not to tell you supposed that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. I remember you saying that this is what it is, um, prison, like a pistol letter, you know? So it's like, he was so preaching the word because of the circumstances that God put in it. So, I'm sorry. Yeah, I missed something you said in that. Could you repeat that? Well, in verse 117, it's about the former priest Christ out of selfish ambition. And not necessarily about the folks that they could stir up trouble for me while I'd be changed. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, what do you, what this you... whole thing was about in Christ because of what the circumstances were. So, so he's talking about other people. Preaching Christ, right? 
Right, right. And he was like defending uh, um, like the Dr. Hospital. Well, uh, I, well, in 16, he says, I think what he's saying in these verses, these previous verses here, is some are trying to stir up trouble for Paul. And so they may get in there and try to preach, but their their motives are wrong. And so he's saying, you know, uh, you know, uh, in verse 17, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, right? So this is saying people are not, they have the wrong motive in preaching Christ. But they think that by doing that, they can make it worse for Paul. He's in jail already for preaching Christ and this whole new message. But they are trying to stir up more trouble. Uh, It's like a hornet's nest, you know, you start poking it, next thing you know, all the hornets come out. That's what's happening. And they feel like they could get Paul in even more trouble. But then other people, Paul said he didn't care. He says, you know what, as long as Christ is preached, false motives are true. Verse 18, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So I think that's what he's saying in 17. Do you see that? Yeah. 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 Any other follow-ups? Does everybody have coffee? <laughs> I got sparkling water. Oh, okay. I got sparkling water, too. I guess I'll get some coffee. <laughs> All right, so I guess we, we, it's time for us to move on into Romans if, if there are no other questions or thoughts. Well, it sounds like we had some good uh, introspection in looking at these scriptures. Uh, so any other follow, follow-up questions before we do hit Romans? Okay, so in Romans chapter 8 is where we are. So a couple things I'd like to read something from Weist. I want to go back to Romans 8, 6, 15. So we talked about adoption yesterday, uh, last, last week, not yesterday. And we discussed how it was about power and authority. It is not just about, well, you know, some uh, childless couple is seeking to have a child or some orphan is now adopted into a family where they have a mother and father or something to that effect. It really has nothing to do with that at all. Uh, so we say, usually, that this is Roman-style adoption. So I did want to read a little bit about what Roman-style adoption is, and then there's some interesting things here. In Rome, and this is from uh, Kenneth Wiest. Uh, uh, and he says this about adoption. I'm just going to read it. So he says, um, hang on, let me get get the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where is it? 
Okay, so thus the Holy Spirit is the one who places children as uh, adult sons when it talks about adoption in a legal standing before God and in relation to him. Vincent is one of the people he, uh, one of the uh, Bible scholars he quotes, quotes a Mr. Merrillville, and this is another person who is a Bible scholar, and here's the quote, the process of legal adoption by which the chosen heir becomes entitled not only to the revision of the property, but to the civil status, to the burdens, as well as all the rights of the adopter, became, as it were, his own self, one with him. This, too, is a Roman principle, peculiar at this time to the Romans, unknown, I believe, to Greeks, unknown to all the appearance of the Jews, as it is certainly not found in the legislation of Moses, nor mentioned anywhere as a usage among the children of the covenant. We have but a faint conception of the force with which such an illustration would speak to one familiar with the Roman practice how it would serve to impress upon him the assurance that the adopted Son of God becomes in peculiar uh, and intimate sense with the Heavenly Father. And then he, he talks about where, whereby we cry. And then I read in another commentary, during that adoption ceremony, as we said, it was a Roman-style adoption, there needed to be seven witnesses to uh, the event. So in other words, if it was done in secret and all of a sudden this person uh, now says, oh, I'm the heir, he gave it to me, and nobody was there, well, then nobody would honor the adoption. But if it was done properly, it would be seven witnesses, seven credible witnesses to the ceremony, that this power did in fact change hands. So hopefully, this I know we already kind of talked about Romans 8.15 where it says uh, we receive the spirit that brought you, uh, brought about your adoption to sonship. So that word adoption is means to place, it has to do with an adult son, to place as an adult son. That's what the word actually literally means. And um, we are placed as, a, and it's interesting that we have not only sons listed here, you know, it makes us sons, and but then it uses also the another word for us, technon, which is uh, the word translated children. But children, sons, same thing. Uh, they're used obviously interchangeably, and one from one verse to the next, we are uh, used. One is we're placed as an adult son, that's adoption, to sonship, and then we see Technon, the Spirit Himself, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So I just thought that was interesting about adoption. I don't usually read the commentaries, but this one I thought. You know, it's nice, it's notable, because we do speak of adoption. I don't want people to think in terms of only 
you know, what we in America might think of uh, when we see adoption. And I read a lot of commentaries also on this fact of, of adoption and what it means. And not a lot of them brought out the fact that it is, is really talking about an exclusive event in uh, how Rome would transfer power. So God, well, actually the Apostle Paul, picks up this metaphor and brings it into the Christian life. We're now explaining what happens to us when the Spirit uh, baptizes us into the body and we are also adopted into sonship. We are placed as adult sons. Now, Christ is the adult son and what is to say is we're placed in union with Christ or we are one with him, which also uh, talks about the relationships that he has. He's one with the Father. So we, that, is, that union is so, that bond is so strong that at the end of that verse in 15, he says, and by him, by who? By Christ and by the Spirit, right? Because that's who we're identified with. But by him we cry, Abba, which is Father. And that is an emotional cry. Now, generally, we don't see much about how we are told to be emotional or that we might be emotional. But in this case, that is something that is called out here. That it elicits an emotional response from us when we do understand this. And this emotional response recognizes what God has done through the ministry of the Spirit on our behalf. We see it. We agree. And the next verse basically says just that. So we're going to move on to verse 16. Uh, before we go, does anybody have any questions about 15 before we venture into 16? I'll take your silence as no. So 16, let's get into it. Right, hold up. Okay. I couldn't get my phone off and you're passing up. The question would be in regard to the emotion behind the cry. Mm-hmm. Would this be a cry of joy? Of like, I I don't imagine it would be a cry of desperation. So it would be, I would imagine it would be a cry of delight. It is. It's more. It, it's a. It's a cry of belonging, right? So, for us to not be a slave to fear, right? What we were in Adam, and the Jews. You know, how they were looking at the law and they were fearful and, you know, how they saw God. They were never close to God in this respect. But now, what we have in this age has brought us so close to God that we are able, when we sense that, the response is that we cry, Father. So I also note there's... When we get to Romans 9, which is the next chapter, is it 9? No, it's Romans 10, where it talks about, uh, you know, well, well, I'll just read it real quick since we, we have a little time. So Romans 10, and 
this is the verse that everybody likes to quote. It's where it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what is it, 1010, I believe. For it is with, uh, where is it? For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved, right? So this is, if you declare with your, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God has raised them from the dead, you will be saved. Right? So this is, this is ten, ten nine is the actual what goes on on the inside. Ten ten is what the expected response will be. Right out of your mouth, and it is with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. Right, it should be unto salvation, meaning it doesn't make you saved, but it. It shows that you, it, it out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks what your heart just did. So in the same way, when in, when you're looking at that verse in 8, you're saying, once I see this clearly, then my mouth be, cries out, Father. Now, it, it may not be your mouth crying out, it's sort of a metaphor, but in your soul, you cry out, Father. You understand that you are you are united to the Father in this special relationship. And that's what we're going to get into a little bit. So hopefully. But I don't um, I don't want to continue down the rabbit trail too much. Um, but isn't Romans ten nine and ten ten isn't that uh, referring or borrowed from the Old Testament? Yeah, it's not. Um, it, the only reason I'm using it is just to show once you have something in your heart the result is that uh, you confess right out of your mouth right that, that is the expected mm -hmm. result and the expected result in this verse same thing because once you the holy spirit testifies with your spirit and you understand about your adoption to sonship what is the expected response we cry out father so a couple of uh commentaries when I was reading some of the background research what they try to relate this to is the fact oh it's just about your salvation and how um, you know you're born again and because you're born again you're born now God is your father you're born into the family of God and so forth but this is not related necessarily it, I mean it's true we are born again and we do have certain rights relative to our birth and that is how uh, it is in this age a lot of this happens simultaneously but it is the spirit that brings about this adoption to sonship and how does that happen it happens through the baptism of the spirit that's what places us identifies us with the person of christ and a result of that is adoption and this whole thing about us being adopted is something made up by the Apostle Paul to explain something much more deep and spiritual that actually happens to us. So this Roman-style adoption, all this that he brings out, great analogy, but it is a result of the baptism of the Spirit that we are placed as adult sons in union with Christ. And what he is, we are. Right. What he what his what his destiny is and rewards and all those things are available 
because of our identification. And then we're going to see later as well, not only do we share everything he has, we share his relationships as well. His relationships with the Father. His relationship with the Father in particular. So, so Romans 8.16 begins... So you were referring to 8.16 about sharing things, right? 8.16. What, so I'm saying, but you were referring to, you were speaking about 8.17. What about 8.17? You were saying about sharing. Sharing? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we are identified with Christ, right? And we share everything right. he has. However, there is, if you're, if you're referring to 17, yeah, there is the one condition, provided that we also share in his sufferings. Is that what you're referring to? Okay. Is that, that what you're referring to? I'm assuming, yeah. okay, I'm going to say, I'm assuming that's what you're referring to. Okay. All right, so, so we're in 8.16 then. So the Spirit himself, now in the King James, it's the Spirit itself. And the reason is, is because pneuma, which is the word translated spirit, is neuter gender. Usually, uh, if there is a an antecedent meaning a word that modifies a noun, and that is the word autos in the Greek here. So it has to take the neuter gender because the noun is neuter. But in this case, the spirit is not a thing. It is a person. So the NIV correctly translates it himself. What did you say? So it translates it himself, which is, I think, a great job. And most translations now who understand uh, some of the nuances of Greek when they didn't understand all of that in uh, the 1600s now translate it himself, which is the right thing to do. So so we're talking about the Holy Spirit here, and this is post-salvation. This is not at salvation. This is post-salvation. He testifies with our spirit. So notice, he doesn't testify necessarily that we are um, justified, saved, have eternal life, all that. He testifies that we are God's children. Now, a person could say, well, we're born again, so that means we're his children. That's not exactly the point. So if you look in verse 17, what's the point? Now, if we, if we are children, then what? Then we are heirs. That's the point. We, are, we, are, we inherit something. That's when he talks about you're a child or you're, you're children. He's talking about we are heirs. We inherit something. So if we have a new relationship with God, like Israel had a new relationship with God. Right? If you go back to the Mosaic Law, God had to lay out everything that that relationship involved. Right? What are the rewards? What are you know? What do you need to do? Um, what is your inheritance? You know, for Israel, it was the land. And then, what about us? 
If we have a completely new relationship with God, then all of those things would need to also be laid out. What are our rewards? You know, what is our responsibility before God? What's our calling? And then um, what is our inheritance? That's an, that's an important way to, to, to think about it. Our inheritance. What is our inheritance? So when he speaks of children and adoption and all that, right? This is how we understand it. We're not to just understand, oh, we're children. I'm happy enough to just be a child of God. You need to understand that adoption is a reference here to a transfer of power. Remember, we talked about Romans-style adoption. And how being adopted is not just, oh, okay, now I was fatherless or, you know, I didn't have a family. Now I do have a family. It goes beyond that. And it speaks about inheritance. If you're a child, Paul, he reasons, to, he says, and, and if you're a child, then you're an heir. And if you're an heir, you're an heir of God, right? You're not an heir of Christ. But you are a joint heir with Christ, but not an heir of Christ. Because you are identified with Christ already. You have everything he has. Except for the suffering part, right? Which you, it'll be your choice. But you have the opportunity to suffer just like Christ suffered according to his own will. So if we're children, then we're heirs, right? That's 17. We didn't get to that yet. But I, the Spirit himself testifies. Now, uh, so looking at testifies means... It means, in the Greek, gives joint testimony with our spirit, right? So, so you got the spirit and you have our spirit. Now, just a note about how we're made up, right? When we think about the spirit, the spirit that is alive in us gives us insight into the spiritual realm, spiritual world, we could say. When you're spiritually dead, then you have no cognizance or understanding of spiritual realities you're removed from god god pushes himself away from you because you of your condition so when we're talking about who we are the spirit is dead meaning it is inactive it is not existent it is not something that functions on our behalf all we have is a soul so we have a soul and we have a body but when the Spirit is alive, that means we're born again. And the Spirit testifies, right, bears joint witness. In other words, uh, he doesn't directly teach our souls. Because once our spirits understand it, then our souls can, can understand it. So the Spirit is that part of you that does reach into the spiritual realm to understand. It, it allowed, like Adam was created body, soul, and spirit. He had the capability to understand God and have a relationship with God. We are born spiritually dead because of what Adam did, meaning God, we don't have a relationship with God. And how does Paul describe it in Romans 3? He says, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understand, none who seek God, none who do good. Right? These, what, that's what it means to be spiritually dead and unrighteous with the sin nature. All of that is 
the ball of confusion we are born into. So, so the Spirit testifies. He bears joint, uh, joint testimony with our spirits. Right? He, what is he trying to make clear to us? What is the point? And now notice, with our spirits, that means we have a testimony. And we agree. And both of these joint testimonies agree with one another, which uh, helps us understand something. So first of all, what do we need to know in our spirit? We need to come to the knowledge of the truth about who we are. So we come to the knowledge of the truth about the fact that we are heirs, uh, right? That we're children. We are God's children. We learn that. The Spirit teaches us that through Bible doctrine, through, through the Word, right? We, we get that, and we come to know that we're sons, right? We're children, all those things. This is a part of our understanding and spiritual growth. But what the Spirit does, in turn, he, beyond Him just teaching you that you're a son, teaching your spirit that you're a son, there, here is a joint testimony going on here. So it's not just you learning that you're a son. It is the Spirit joining with what you know already about who you are to confirm, to witness that we are God's children. So that's, you know, it can be translated a lot of different ways. The Spirit teaches our spirit. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Right? We already know that we're sons, but there's something that the Spirit himself adds to our own testimony that we're sons. And it, it is not different. It, it, it is the same thing that we already know that we're sons, but he also gives us an internal testimony that confirms what God has done through the ministry of the Spirit. So this I have linked to Ephesians 1. And I'm just going to turn to Ephesians 1. And we have studied this. I know all of you already can repeat it. So here it is, verse 13. And you were also, you also were included in Christ. So it's interesting because we don't talk about necessarily, a lot of people talk about being, well, I shouldn't say it. This is, when we say in Christ, that is a special designation. People could talk, you could talk about being saved. And you can talk about being in Christ. In this age, they're synonymous. But the fact that if you look at the previous here, Paul is talking about very something very special. He's talking about the, all this stuff about us. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. And this is verse 5. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us as the one he loves, uh, we have redemption. He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to, uh, to us the mystery. So all of this is, that, that's what this is related to. When he says, and you were included in Christ. It's related to all of what he's talking about in Christ, which the benefits that you have as a result of being in Christ. That one verse, verse 4, for he chose you in him before the creation of the world. 
So he's now he's going to say, how how did you get to be in Christ? Actually, physically in Christ. How did that happen for you? And so he's really, not, even though salvation is a necessary step here, he's not talking about salvation. That's not the subject. When, it, when he says he chose you in him, that salvation is not the subject there. He's talking about what God sovereignly did even before you were here to make a decision. He knew you would make it. But it is not about salvation. So just to note. So verse 13. You were included in Christ. How did, when, when did you get included? When you heard the message of truth. What's the message of truth? The gospel of your salvation. Well, when you heard the gospel, when you believed, that's when you were included in Christ. So we know simultaneously, right? And I talked about this already before, how a lot of uh, Pentecostal people are, you know, they're, they're trying to say that, oh, once you believe in Christ, then you got to tarry to wait for this second blessing. That is, the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes you, but that's later. First you get saved, and all that was for the transition. It has nothing to do with now. So this is, the te- this is what happens the moment you believe in Christ. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And that's when you were included in Christ. So here's what it involves. It, it involves believing the gospel. And as soon as you believe the gospel... The Holy Spirit does all that automatically. There is nothing you do to make this happen. So it says, when, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That is what God has done for you. The moment you believe. Now, if he would have stopped there, and that would have been the end of it, then I couldn't link these two verses together. When I say these two verses, I'm talking about Romans 8.16 and Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. I couldn't leave. But this next verse right, says, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit. So it, Paul uses the term deposit, and we already covered that. I don't know whether we covered it on Sunday or we covered it last week, but because we're both, we're on both days, we're talking about similar things talking about this holy spirit is a deposit that's a tangible thing that god has given us and what does it the deposit do it guarantees our inheritance well well, we just talked about what it means to be a child and adoption and all that which is even in the context here remember we're not talking about salvation in fact i remember when we first started looking at this this got to be 20 years ago now 15, maybe, 20. I used to think, ah, this is a great eternal security passage. And I taught it as such. I said, man, if you're sealed, how can you be unsealed, right? No, you God, there is no such thing as being unsealed. Right? But this verse has nothing to do with salvation. I wouldn't say nothing to do, but it's not talking about salvation. This verse is talking about your inheritance. What is it? It doesn't guarantee your salvation. It guarantees your inheritance. Well, what's that about? That's the fact that you're a child of God here. That you've been adopted now. That this power transfer has gone on and this is a part of who you are now. You're a son. 
you have, and if you're a son, then you have this inheritance. This is who we are. We talked about the distinction between who Israel was and God had laid it all out for them. He's laying it all out for us now. Who we are in Christ. So this is a deposit. This is literally God saying to you, I guarantee that this is yours and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do more than just tell you about it. I'm going to demonstrate that you have this. This is part of who you are in Christ. So it has to be something tangible. It has to be something. Oh, it was Sunday because that's what we were talking about on Sunday. Yeah, it has to be something tangible when he talks about deposit. And back to Romans, for sure. Well, when does he, well, just before we go to Romans, stay in Ephesians 1.14, who is a deposit. It guarantees our inheritance. Now get this part, until the redemption. Now why is it until the redemption? Because that's the time we need it. Right? I, I know it's, this is a rhetorical question for you guys because I'm not really asking, but I'm saying, think about the, this when you read that. Why is it only until the redemption? Because once the redemption comes, that's the rapture. We get our resurrection bodies. All that God has given us will be complete. We won't just have the deposit at the redemption of our bodies. We will have the full bounty of everything God had promised us. Not just a small portion of it. All of it. And he's referring to our inheritance of who we are in Christ. But we only need it for now while we're on the battlefield. Right now is when we need it. Because maybe we don't know. Maybe we are still thinking of ourselves as those who are in Adam. And, you know, everything familiar to us is the stench of Adam. And what God is telling you is, I got something here for you that will take you and help you through these Difficult times when you're struggling with your identity crisis of who you are. So th this deposit guarantees it, right? And what is the guarantee? It is that God, the Holy Spirit, makes these things perspicuous, known, manifest about who you are as a son, as a child, and all the rights and privileges Related to it. Now I'm going back to Romans for sure. Romans chapter 8. So we know this talked about inheritance. Verse 17 says if your child, well, now if we are children, meaning not if, since we're children, then we are heirs. That's the point that he's making. And he's using that if-then logic. These were debaters' techniques. If this is so, then that follows. So really, you could translate this one as since we are children. Because he already said in 16 that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that what is, what is he making known to us? What is he making clear to us? That we're children. And this children is not just, oh, you, you're just, a, a, you know, born again. Look at the previous verse. He just told you what it meant. Adoption. You've been placed as, adult, as adult sons in Christ. 
You're in union with the person of Christ as an adult son. And we cry, Father. That's the response. The relationship is that, uh, it, it, is that the bond is that clear and strong that we can say, Father. We can. Just like Christ walked around saying, my Father this and my Father that. You don't know my father. You this he was going into those skirmishes with the Pharisees. He says the reason you're persecuting me is because you don't know the father. And he talked to his disciples. Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say show us the father? The relationship that I have with the father is so dynamic that the father is here talking to you right now. He's in me. We are one. And this relationship is conferred upon us through adoption. So this is what it says here. If we're children, this is part of who we are. God's children. And we just talked about the huge power transfer. The fact that Christ, who Christ is, is the creator of all things. We're not just adopted into the person of Christ because he has humanity. No, when, when, are we, when are we united to the person of Christ? We, we went through this when we were in Romans four, uh, John 14. It is, actually Romans 6. It is not until his death. That's the important part. So we don't identify with Christ we're, and we say, oh, we're Jews. Because Christ was a Jew in his humanity. He was a Jew, by the way. But we are identified with him in his death. Not when he was a baby or when he grew up and all this other stuff. But when he died, that's when God took the opportunity to identify us with the person of Christ. Even though he chose us in him before the creation of the world, first he had to come as true humanity and die for the sins of the world and then be able to be the progenitor of the church age. That's what it says in Romans 8 later. When we're getting to it, it says we're being conformed into the very image of his son. Right? Those he called, he chose, that we might be conformed to the very image of his son. That happened. So when we think about who we are in Christ, we don't think about the fact that, uh, you know, yeah, he was a human being and yeah, he... He's, he's, his destiny is to sit on the throne of David and rule earthly things. Our relationship to Christ is, at, is as the image of the invisible God, who is the creator of all things. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, invisible, thrones, whether there be any powers whatsoever. He created everything. It says it was created by him and for him. That is the person that we, ordinary us, are identified with. That's why it says, all things are yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. All things. Don't you know we shall judge angels, it says? Why are you bickering about things? You can't even get along. And yet, do you know you are the people? All things are yours. Don't you get that? So the identity of sonship 
is something that you should be walking around on a daily basis with cognizance. I don't mean it's somewhere off on the back, over on your bookshelf in some corner notebook that you had or some book that you read it and now you pull that down and <laughs> you dust it off and then as you read it again, this is who you are. And the Spirit, as it says here, in verse 16, where it says the Spirit himself, this is active, he continually testifies, gives joint testimony with our spirits that we are, in fact, God's children. This is who we are. This is the most important thing in the church age. If you don't get this, then you miss it. It just doesn't mean you miss it. It means you go back and you start all over again until you get it. Because this is the most important thing about who you are right here. And it's a result of the baptism of the Spirit. There are many results. This is, this is the most important one. It talks about our inheritance. It talks about who we are, the church. We are the manifold wisdom of God. God did this. He brought about many sons in the glory. I'm looking at our time. We're going to have to quit. We'll continue with this thought next week. Before we quit, let me just see if there are any questions before we do. No questions here. Just appreciation for that. Thanks. Uh, yeah, one quick question. Sure, Bill. Go right ahead. Okay, so you made a, delin uh, uh, a reference to the fact that we're not uh, associated with Christ when he was here as a Jew, but we're associated with his death, burial, and resurrection. Correct? Yes, yes that is so. Okay, so when, when Christ uh, in the millennium is Christ a Jew, or is he something other? Well, you, as a church-age believer, are able to share in his battlefield victories here, on, just like we were getting to verse 17 here. You, as a church-age believer, can share in his rulership over earth, right? So when, if you look at there's a couple different things here. Christ is not only, you know, ruler over Israel, which he is the lamb, and there's no other light in the earthly, or the new Jerusalem, but him. But he does rule with all, with everyone. And, uh, but there's also not just earth, but his heavens. He creates new heavens and new earth. And, in the new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down, and Christ is the Lamb who is in the temple of the new Jerusalem. Who is the light of it. And there are some brief descriptions of it in Revelation 21. But the heavens, there's not much said about that, other than the fact that all creation is subject to a creator. All creation. And we are part of who Christ is. Now, obviously, the... Uh, the freedom to have uh, 
the exposure on his, the earthly side is if we shall suffer with him, right? He won. The reason why he gets that particular glory is because he suffered in that such, such a way on earth. He suffered on the battlefield. He will be rewarded on the battlefield. If we suffer with him on the battlefield, we will also be rewarded on the battlefield. But our identification with him goes beyond that. It goes beyond. So one of the things I read in 1 Corinthians 15, which is an, such an excellent verse to think about, and it's verse 45 or 6 somewhere. So it is... So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. But after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust, verse 47, the dust of the earth. And look at the second man is of heaven. As we, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, right? Talking about? We're, we follow after uh, people people are of the earth they're just like Adam was but notice as is the heavenly man so also are those who are of heaven there's a marked difference there and if you're not sure he says in verse 49 and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man in the same way as we were just like Adam right and not just the fact that we fell, but all of our faculties are like what Adam had. They're patterned after him. But so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Verse 49. Without question, we are united to Christ. And the purpose of our uniting to Christ is not for us to be earthly men. The real purpose for us being united to the person of Christ is that we might bear the image of the heavenly man. So, hopefully that answers the question a little bit. Yep. Yeah. All right. Other thoughts out there before we close? All right. Father, thank you for this time we've had this evening. We pray for wisdom as we looked at these verses, Lord, and it's hard for us to believe we are such ordinary people, but yet you've done something extraordinary for us. So we pray that we can wrap our minds around it. We can come to the knowledge of it, and then we will come to glory and love it so that we embrace what you've done what your plan is from eternity past. We thank you for those who are here and those who shared their, uh, their time with us. And we pray that uh, we will be the kind of worshipers that you, you seek, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And that is according to the new revelation that is ours. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.